Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey kids, comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better, stronger, faster. Here are your hosts, Andrew and Michael Leyland. We'll get right into it then. So that we don't uh, have a... I don't want to do emails now. Do you not? I want to go straight into our conversation. We've just been talking off our... Hello. Hello. Welcome to the show. Uh, about the comics for today. Michael's maybe just want to go straight to the what? So straight to the meat. Should we flip it the other, the the other way? No, no. We'll do, we'll do what we normally do because I've got an email open. It's always nice to have an email open, isn't it? It is. Hello, emailers. Hello, oh. Andy. They all say hello. Do they? Yes. They, they all talked back. Did you not hear them? I, through your mouth, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably the only time you listen to me. Hello, Andy and Michael is our first email, which is from Trey Hooks. I said that the wrong way around, didn't I? You did. Multiversity part one. It's been a while since I've written in, but this is the first chance I've had to write soon after listening to a show. I've been eagerly awaiting this and its sister episode. I consider myself a fan of Morrison's work, more or less, but I've only been listening for the past year or so, starting with your coverage of the Slam Bradley backups by Ed Brubaker. Ooh, they were good then. Mm. And backups, like that. Fast forward to the episode on Legends, and I thought, how dare he? But Michael espoused that it was a retread of Final Crisis, but Final Crisis did it better. I wanted to love Final Crisis, what with it being tied into Morrison's Batman work and bringing back my Flash, Barry Allen, but it left me cold. I never understood exactly what was happening after Superman Beyond. Fast forward again to Seven Soldiers of Victory episode. I remember liking a few of the minis, but once again I didn't feel it. However, with Michael's synopses, I saw it in a new light. I've got to go back and listen to the Final Crisis episode, I told myself. I haven't yet. Unfortunately, some fantastic ass has triggered an addiction that has me consuming most of your correspondence output. I'm lucky if I can keep up, as I've listened to your first four or five episodes. So I was looking forward to the breakdown of Multiversity. Most of my thoughts and taste mirror Andy on the issues covered to date. I liked Pax Americana, but I didn't get half of what Michael got from it. I need to reread it. My favourite issue was the society with the pulp take on the characters. I know that was just viewing superheroes through the reality style lens, but with so much being made about the difference between Marvel and DC, is Marvel is superheroes with soap opera, especially when the Silver Age is compared. I felt maybe Morrison was showing what could happen if you followed that trend too far. I do disagree with the statements about convergence conflicting with everything because it says crisis didn't happen. Please don't take me to be a DDO apologist, but my reading on the end of convergence that was because of Parallax and others going back with Kara, Barry and others, crisis ended differently, with the anti-monitor being defeated without the universes collapsing together. If I remember correctly, the anti-monitor was beaten around issue 8 through 9, but it was too late to prevent the Earth from merging. That doesn't mean I liked Convergence or what it's led to, which would be a different subject for a different time. I can, however, see how Multiversity and the Justice League art don't contradict each other re-crisis. Good episode. Loved the musical cues. Trey Hooks. Well, we cannot comment because I know I've not read Multiverse. Um, so, Convergence. does that mean, though, that Convergence literally means that Crisis happened, just not the way we remember it? Very, very... That's how I interpret it. Are they, are they literally doing this now? Apparently so. Surely when you get to that point, you need to just 
fire every single writer <laughs> in your company and just hire new people. I don't, I've not read it. Apparently, Convergence was moderately interesting. But I don't know, because it, it seemed a little bit expensive to me. Yeah. To have a look at the whole thing. So I, I didn't bother. Especially really. when it comes out of, we need to move offices. Yeah. But sometimes something happening causes you to be more creative. The like, only yeah. reason Superman died was because of Lois and Clark, the TV show. Okay. Because it was supposed to be Superman's marriage. Yeah. And then they said, no, we don't want you to do that. We've got a TV show coming out. Uh, the TV show only lasts four years. You've been around 75. But hey, we're more important. But flip side of that is, it could be when you're at your least creative. That true. And Convergence sounds like it's not creative in the slightest. I've not read it, so I have no opinion on it. I'm probably not going to read it. Yeah. I wouldn't have thought. But well, we don't need to now. No, that's true. We know how it ends now, so we don't need to bother with it. Matt Lax has also emailed in. Supergirl Morrison and stuff. Hello, Leylands. Your recent episode on comic characters being brought to the small screen has psyched my fanboy heart. The Jessica Jones episode itself got me very intrigued about the series, and I may try to look around and find the comic to prep myself. Wasn't familiar with the character before, but your discussion has gotten me interested. As for Supergirl, the Peter David book was a personal favourite. Linda, Matrix, was a wonderfully written character, and this was a clever way to give us both a Supergirl we could relate to and a twist on the old. These last few issues were bittersweet for me. I loved the story, but was very sad to see it end. I've always wondered what happened to Linda and was hoping for a follow-up, but alas, it was never to be. But hooray for DC and Dan DiDio for bringing those Red Lantern Supergirl. Anyway, Michael's first part of his last part on Grant Morrison and Multiversity was very good. I found the series to be a bit uneven, upside down, backwards and forwards, and any other clever way you can describe the Morrison story. Can't wait for part two, let the dizziness begin. Thank you for keeping me coming back every week. Your pal, Mark Lax. Well, that's perfectly okay, Matt. We're very glad you enjoyed the Supergirl shows, because we did too. Didn't we? Mm-hmm. Michaelversity 2. Well, we enjoyed doing them. Yeah. Chris Franklin is the email of Michaelversity 2. Because Michaelversity 1 was last week. It was. It was good. Hello, Leyland. Well, that was interesting. I enjoyed the Thunderworld comic. As I said, it was the only issue of the series I picked up. I understand the Convergent Shazam boot was also quite good. Seems like a lot of folks have good Captain Marvel stories in them, in the classic vein. I believe Suspendium was the gas Sivana used on the entire Marvel family that caused them to be in suspended animation from the 50s following Fawcett Comics suspending their titles and DC picking them up in the 70s. So Morrison is calling back to an almost forgotten aspect of Shazam lore. Ultra may be a nod to the Bronze Age DC character Ultra, who first appeared in JLA from time to time. He was the first hero of Earth Prime, who was said to be Owl World. Yes, years before Superboy Prime came along about during Crisis, there was Ultra, who honestly sucked a lot. But I bet Morrison loved the idea of a superhero living in our world and interacting with the JLA of Earth 1. And since it ties in nicely to the idea of a comic character talking to us via a haunted comic, I bet it's more than a dink. Great job on the episodes, Michael. Looking forward to the Black Costume Saga. Everyone seems to like what you did with Multipost. Mm-hmm. No one cared about Scott Pilgrim. No. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. People emailed in about you gotta Scott you got to go for the big names, not the indie ones. Is that what you've got to do? It is, yeah. Right. Big two, no indies. Big two, no indies. Mm. That should be a name of a podcast. Could be. I think that would be a pretty cool name for a podcast. Big two, no indies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not what we do. We've done indies. Mm-hmm. We've done indies quite a lot. Stephen Lacey's emailed in. It's always That's nice to hear from Stephen. Oh, we're doing this email. Yeah, we may as well. Uh, the multiverse here. Hello, literal Leylands. It must be that time of year again when I actually write an email rather than simply discuss things with Andy before recording an episode two of the world's greatest comic podcast, or the Fantastic Cast. So the multiversity. I had a long rant of an email written in my head. 
I foolishly read the Facebook comments before I got to the section focusing on Pax Americana, so I didn't listen, imagining a classic, if outdated, rant by Andy on why comics aren't fun and how Grant Morrison, I'm Grant Morrison, is so far up his own ass that this metaphor is unfinished. And then I listened. It wasn't as bad as I was expecting, although you are both, of course, completely wrong. Now, I was expecting him, though, to actually follow that up with how we are wrong. Yeah. Yeah, he doesn't. Mm. So I'm just going to take that as no, we're not, <laughs> and leave it at that. But I'm not here to tell you about that, even though I just did. Arguably, you didn't. I'd like to talk about rereading comics, and I don't mean rereading a story out years down the line or rereading a bunch of issues to remind yourself of the story. There are two comics since the New 52 and my return to buying issues at a comic shop that I have reread immediately upon finishing the first read. The first was Batman number 5, where the effectiveness of changing how you hold and read the comic and the way that changed the story you were reading was so strong, I had to do it all over again to be sure that such a unique reading experience had actually happened. I got a lot of strange looks in name of commercial coffee shop redacted, but it was worth it. Yeah, Batman number five was the one we had keep yeah. turning up. That was good. Mm-hmm. That was a very intelligent way of making us buy the comic yeah. instead of buying it digitally, wasn't it? Because I it bet was, digitally that just does not work. It was all down to Capullo as well. Was it? It wasn't scripted like that. Was it not? No. So Capullo basically took the script and did that with it. Yep. What a guy. Mm. That's the artist you want working with you, isn't it? it is. What did Snyder think of that? Uh, I don't know. Because was that back when they weren't friends? I think or so. Or did they become friends? It was only the point? fifth issue, but I remember him thanking the editor for letting him do it. So do you think it was that that Scott Snyder looked at and go, wait a minute, this is actually quite good? Could be. And left him alone at that point. Mm. Alright, fair enough. The second was Pax Americana. I was quite taken aback to discover neither of you were overly familiar with Watchmen, that so many parallels had to be pointed out to Andy. I've only read Watchmen twice. I've only read it once. Uh, I read it once when it came out in trade in 1989, 1990. And then I read it again about ten years after that, which at this point is 15 years ago. Uh, I think I read it a few years ago, wasn't blown away and had no interest to to pick it up again. No, Watchmen's one of them. I think it suffers from its own hype. Yeah. I think it is a comic book that works on a certain level if you're a certain kind of fan and it works if you're not a reader of comics. It's, it's one of those where it's like, oh yeah, okay, the backup bits, the little magazines. Yeah. Cool, nifty. And you're not, you're not blown away by it. You're not going, oh man, Alan Moore's just a genius. Yeah. It's just, I think it's fine. Yeah. I, don't think it's, I think I like V for Vendetta much more than I like Watchmen. Mm. And we keep saying we'd cover V for Vendetta and that will now never happen. Because we can never do it on November 5th anymore, can we? We can't, no. Unless we record a November 5th one over summer. Yeah. And just release it on November 5th. Yeah, that may work. Mm -hmm. See how much free time we end up having. Where were we? I reread Pax Americana three times in a row, says Stephen, on the day of purchase. The first time was like being taken on a roller coaster ride. The experience of making it to the end of the comic was a rush. I then reread it knowing how the story started, ended, putting the pieces into place with the benefits of the knowledge gained by the end, similar to how Michael wrote his synopsis. Finally, I read it just focusing on the artistic and writing nods to Watchmen. It's that very rare thing, a modern comic book that evolves with each reading, one of the best values for money out there. A couple of other notes. Two from the guidebook is artist Marcus oh Marcus Toe should that be Marcus Tau Toe I think it's yeah you think it's Toe or Two I think it's Toe yeah best known for his work on the pre-New 52 Red Robin series and the Huntress Mini from the New 52 the Multiversity map wasn't a promotional item folded into the series the map was designed by Ryan Hughes and illustrator and designer of High Renown a lot of the great 1990s logos came from his hand and he's a close collaborator with Morrison especially on The Invisibles he did a great story in the recent Batman Black and White series involving language a heady and rich read basically he doesn't do promotional stuff he doesn't need the work what he does do is collaborate 
collaborate closely with Morrison, and I think the map was a great piece of work living up to the conceptual ideas of the multiverse. You know, we've met Ryan Hughes. Have we? Or I have, anyway. He what? was in London when we went. Was he? Hmm? I, I don't remember. He was having a nice chat with uh, Steve Yowell about oh, the right. new Zenith collection. Right, that Steve Yowell wasn't... Was yeah. Steve Yowell was a fan of. Yeah. Brad Morrison's not they, a they fan They were talking of. about Mr. Morrison about it. Oh, right. Okay. Uh, but, you see, the thing with this, Stephen, is the multiversity map was promotional at San Diego Comic-Con. Hmm. See, remember when they did the... the um, the cut of Owl's Mask. Yes. And a bunch of jealous fans went, oh, we want this, so they released the box set. Which is fair enough. The multiversity map was promotional, exclusive to San Diego Comic Con, but a bunch of jealous fans went, oh, we want this, and so the guidebook spawned from it. I'll take your, I'll, I'll your word for it. I don't know any of this stuff. <laughs> yeah. Okay, fair enough. Finally, a quick note on Convergence. People are talking a lot about Convergence this week, considering yeah. we've not read it <laughs> and don't have any interest in reading it. Maybe we should. Maybe we should, yeah. I've, I've succumbed and bought Secret Wars 1 through 4. You have? Yeah. You enjoying that? I am, with the caveat that nothing's happened! Doesn't don't they kill off the Marvel Universe in the first issue? Yes. Is that not doing and it a bit too quick? become something else. The battle world. Yeah. It's well done. Yeah. But I'm you're four, four issues in now, three issues in now, and I'm like, is something going to happen? So well, who's writing it? Um, your bloke, who I couldn't get into on Fantastic Four, Hickman. Hickman. Well, that's probably why he was uh, on Fantastic Four for what ten years and nothing <laughs> happened. <laughs> you yeah, like that? He had bro. about three different series going off and on. You, as you well. like that, bro? I did. I couldn't get into it. And nothing happened, but it was fun. No, that's true. At the end of the core series, the battle planet is broken apart, and numerous worlds that participate in the world's fighting concept were literally given their own worlds by Brainiac. Is this Secret Wars? I, I was just thinking <laughs> that. Transitioning from pre-New 52 into the multiverse. It was a nice piece of tying similar worlds together and validated the work done in the multiverse series. Just read it all quickly in one go. Because whilst it's fun from the point of view of seeing things like the Scataris again, it's not a very strong story. Far more fun of the minis, with highlights being Wolf and Super Girl, Jürgen's Superman, Yenkin Shazam, Simone's Nightwing, and Oracle and Rooker's The Question. Enough from me, go and listen to the Fantastic Cast. There are some fun special episodes being released in the run-up to the Josh Trank movie. Steve. Well, thank you, Stephen. I, I especially appreciated you saying we were wrong and then not following up why we were wrong. I firmly believe we're correct. Do you? I do, I do. <laughs> I, I, think, I think that's doubt in Stephen's mind. Is it? Yeah, he All wants right. to be right, so we have to be wrong. Okay. I did say when he said he'd emailed us. I'm sure at some point you'll tell us we're wrong. Mm. If, if the Fantastic Four movie's coming out and you're covering all Fantastic I, Four We're stuff, not covering that movie. Are you not? I'm not. Is that is that an agreed decision yeah. or is it you just rebelling? Well, it's a little bit of both because I think Stephen was interested in doing it. Right. And I said, I'm not, I'm not paying money to go and watch that. <laughs> I'm not interested in it. Every right. single trailer I've seen has put me off more and more. Mm. Which is surely the inverse yeah, response yeah. that you should have. I don't think trailers. that's supposed to happen. But Batman versus Superman's the same. The, the, it's not putting me off because I am like I want to see Batman and Superman it's... on screen together. But the more I see of it, the more I'm like, what are they doing here? Yeah, they're just cramming everything into it. And I can't be the only one who doesn't like Frank Miller's Batman chest emblem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but that's the one they're using. Mm. It just looks like a fat blob. I don't, I don't with mind it. Tiny little things it's, underneath. It's the same with the Suicide Squad as well. 
everything I see about that has just made me go, oh, I don't think I'm interested in oh, seeing the, this. Oh, the, the Joker drives a Lamborghini and it's bright and purple. Aren't Which it? is a shame because Margot Robbie yeah. is actually very good casting as Harley Quinn. Right. And if there's one reason I would see that, it would be to see what she does with Harley. Okay. But yeah, everything I see about that, I'm like, I'm not interested. Mm. Which is a shame because I think a Suicide Squad TV show yeah. would be fantastic. Especially if they did actually have the guts to kill people off. Yeah. Which, uh, it wouldn't surprise me to get to the end of Suicide Squad and they've not killed anybody. Yeah. Which is kind of like the problem I have with the Expendables. None of them are expendable. None of them are expendable. Yeah. <laughs> They're not going to kill off Dolph Lundgren. Because <laughs> Dolph would be like, what are you killing me for? So, you know. Anyway, yeah. Okay, so no. If we do, if we do an episode of Fantastic Cast that is about that movie, Stephen will be doing that with a guest. Do the, do the TV movie. We're, we're, doing, we're doing that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're doing the Roger Corman flight. As a replacement. Uh, no, we're doing that because I think it'll be fun. Oh, okay. <laughs> anyway, we'll squeeze in somebody else's email. Who else has emailed in? So, Alan Cordes has emailed in. What earth is this? Hey, kids. I like it when people open like that. I've been listening to and enjoying your show for quite a while now, ever since I saw your podcast referenced to on a Reddit board. We were referenced on a Reddit board? Well, it wasn't by me, so I don't think it was you. I'm pretty damn sure it wasn't me. Maybe we were just that popular. I don't know about that. It's probably somebody slagging us off. Does that mean they have to keep quiet about the Reddit community now? <laughs> yeah. We've already lost the Tumblr. We've already lost the Tumblr audience. <laughs> <laughs> we don't want to go anywhere near the Reddits. I wanted to write in before, oh no, say it ain't so, the show comes to an end. All things end. Mm-hmm. At least we're going out on our own terms. All good things come to an end. All good things Which come to an end. Which means we must be a great thing. We're a great thing. We are. We are. And we're coming out on our own terms. We're actually yeah. ending it. I mean, we'll do reunion movies that are never as good as the actual series, because mm-hmm. that's the way these things go. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we may even have Thor in one of them. We, we, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or oh, should we marry the bionic woman? <laughs> Something like that. Or oh, get imagine. Thor with the bionic woman. That would be awesome. Although your mum would be like, no. Yeah. Unless she is the bionic woman. Unless it's the TV movie Thor. <laughs> good luck, Charlie's dad. No <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wrong with him. <laughs> he was fantastic. <laughs> Troll! Uh, my first foray into the world of comics, continues Alan, came in the 90s when my local news announced that Superman was about to be killed off. Remember the bliss of being a young, naive comic book fan? Despite the fake-out, the death of Superman remains one of my favourite comic touchstones to this day. I was interested to see what they would do with their latest incarnation of the Doomsday v Superman fight, and I think it was a better read than most give it credit for. Granted, most of the middle issues seems like money-milking filler, but the first and last issues were pretty solid action stories, complemented by some great artwork. The series seems to have been an attempt to get a little more out of a historically worn-off villain, leading to the newest series, Doomed, where the character becomes a sort of DC equivalent of the Hulk. I will read this newest series with hopeful scepticism. As for the rest of the DC universe, I have given up all hope of making sense of it. I join others in having contracted event fatigue and have taken to checking out the independent aisle of my comic book store. It seems likely the editorial at the Big Two will be bouncing back and forth between crises for years to come. Incidentally, here is my solution for the problem of a convoluted backstory. Every issue exists in its own universe, and any cohesion with any other issue is entirely coincidental. With all that said, I hope to write in again before Hey Kids Comics walks that old dusty trail into the sunset. But in the event that I don't, I would like to express my sincere thanks for taking the time to put together such a wonderful podcast. Your friend from over the pond, Alan Cordas. Well, thank you very much, Alan. We appreciate that, but the person you should be thanking is my wife, who doesn't complain that much. 
about us putting together such a wonderful podcast. At least not to our faces. <laughs> oh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know about that. Anyway, we will trailer a show. I think we'll do Third Degree Burn. Okay. Just a reminder to me to put that trailer in this time. And we will be right back after that trailer has burned through your earlobes. See you in a minute. Now I'll show you what I already know. As one tiny spark becomes a night of blazing suspense. There is fire. There is smoke. Burn it down! Burn it down! Dick, you're fired! Thank you. Flame on! Hey, Johnny! I didn't know you could ignite parts of your body. Now, to do the job, I need some high-octane gasoline. Fire! What would you like to do in the whole world? Burn it all. Your world will burn. Come on, let's burn them all. Go, go. Some men aren't looking for anything logical, like money. They can't be bought, bullied, reasoned, or negotiated with. Some men just want to watch the world burn. Third Degree Burn, a podcast looking at all things John Byrne. Available at 22freaks.com. What a hothead. Welcome back to the second part of our look at the post-crisis era of DC Comics. Last week we looked at the cornerstones of the DC Universe, Batman, Superman and Wonder Woman, and this week the second tier of DC's big guns, The Flash, Green Arrow and Green Lantern. With The Flash, the question of what to do post-crisis was answered relatively simply. As you will hear on Tales of the JSA when they get there, Barry Allen, a.k.a. the Silver Age Flash, died in heroic fashion, giving his life to save the universe. For some, this was bittersweet. After all, Barry had only just been given his long-deserved happy ending. But for DC editor Mike Gold, this was only the beginning of the story. Editor-in-Chief Dick Giordano felt The Flash was just as important to the DCU as Batman, Superman or Wonder Woman, and as such needed to have the same care, attention and publicity of the other characters. Giordano turned to Gold, who in turn turned to another Mike, writer Mike Barron, to re-energise the character. In many ways, DC's job was already laid out for them. There was already a teen version of The Flash, the imaginatively named Kid Flash, who was in reality Wally West, a former teen titan who had grown up with Barry as his role model. Readers had already seen Wally grow up in the pages of the Teen Titans, so in lieu of a Barry Allen resurrection, it made sense to give Wally the mantle and let him run with it. There are, however, a few problems here, which I'm sure, lovely listener, that you are already aware of. If Wally was following on from Barry, that meant that Barry's adventures had all, in some capacity, happened, which kind of negated the whole point of the crisis, especially given that Barry was the character who brought about the whole multiple Earth thing in the first place. We were being introduced to a new Superman and Wonder Woman and a reimagined Batman, but here was a character who had definitely existed before these events. His adventures would still be part of his backstory. Already DC was breaking its own ground rules, and they would spend a good few years working all this out. The new Flash would actually debut in a six-issue miniseries entitled Legends, which we've already covered back in Volume 3, Episode 27. Do you like that I did research again? Did you? Yeah. What do you think of that? 
the whole point of the crisis was everything was coagulated into one universe and was started all over again. But Wally West is now the Flash, which means that Barry Allen's adventures happened, given that it was crisis on two worlds that caused the crisis on Infinite Earth to, ha- to happen. Can't say more that surprise. <laughs> Why not? Well, well, well we, we discussed Batman last week, yeah. and that, that didn't go well for them, did it? So there couldn't have been that much understanding throughout DC... Anyway. I don't think they, they'd kind of had this idea and then I don't think they actually sat down on a blanket level mm. and thought about it yeah because like if they had they may have actually gone well wait a minute Wally West being the Flash means that Barry Allen was the Flash yeah where did that happen mm. and it's a little bit confusing you know for all the flack people give DC at least they're consistent <laughs> what consistently not good at thinking things through <laughs> yeah. is that what you're saying <laughs> Nevertheless, Flash number one, cover dated June 1987, was released, was released sorry, at the cover by Jackson Guice and Larry Marlstead. As befits the first issue, it's a poster image, but horrible yellow background notwithstanding, it's great. Presenting the new Flash runs the copy, and we see the Flash racing a number of fighter jets. What do you think of it? It's good. It's alright, isn't it? Mm. Does the job of a first issue. Yeah. So you like the cover? Yeah. Yeah, I don't like the. Back- I hate yellow backgrounds, though, don't I? Yeah, I think I've railed against them it quite a de- few times. It definitely in the past. makes it stand out, though. It it does, but in a not very good way. But yeah. what's wrong with that cover being light blue? But yeah, yeah, okay. You know, like sky is. <laughs> I, it's still. I thought effective. it was a garish pink. It is only when there's a crisis happening. Yeah, and we've come out of the crisis now. Right, okay. So, so the yellow sky is so. maybe it's going through the shades of red then before it settles we've, back we've down gone to through blue. orange and now we're in yellow. Yeah, okay, I think it's garish, but that's just me. The issue was by Baron, uh, as mentioned above, and the art team was also Guice and Malstead. There does not seem to be a title to this particular story, as both the logo Flash. And the banner Happy Birthday Wally are given prominence on page two, which isn't quite a splash page. No. But kind of is. Maybe it's called Happy Birthday Wally. I was going to say, we're going to go with Happy oh, Birthday okay, Wally because right, okay. it's our show. Yeah. And uh, that's what we're going with. I think uh, comic people should start calling this issue that now. Happy Birthday Wally. Credit us. I think we should, we should email Mike, Mike's Amazing World of DC, and yeah. we should say, I think this one should be called Happy Birthday Wally. And he'll go, that's a genius idea. <laughs> he'll go no I don't think so (laughs) it's certainly you know it it works as a title doesn't it happy birthday Wally having it Mm -hmm. I think is what we say at this point on Wally West's 20th birthday he receives a call from the local hospital noted science fiction author Eugenie Hegstrom Hugo and Nebula award winner needs a heart transplant and the Flash is the only one capable of getting there in time the Flash is happy to provide this service, but he wants paying. He's not a charity, and he has no other form of income. He'll do this in exchange for medical insurance from the hospital and a plane ticket home. There's some grumbling, but the Flash takes it on the chin and sets off. He's looking at a three-hour trip to his destination in Seattle, so the quicker he gets going, the better. Flash is speeding across the rail corridor in central Wyoming when he spots a man being beaten to death. Taking a quick pit stop, the man tells Flash that he is a PI investigating a man named Varney Sack, an alias for Vandal Savage. Savage, watching from nearby, suddenly attacks the Flash, but then disappears in a puff of plot. The Flash tries to help the PI, but he's already dead, so he tells the local police and continues on his merry way. He arrives in Seattle and promptly passes out for 17 hours straight. 
When Wally wakes up, Hegstrom's operation has been undertaken, and it was a massive success. And by pure chance, in addition to being a noted sci-fi author, she's also a history buff, and when The Flash asks her about Vandal Savage, she gives him the lowdown. Savage has a rep throughout Europe over the centuries. Some say as an advisor to kings, some say as a king himself. He was compared to Nostradamus or Machiavelli, a man of mystical power and immortality. No one can say if he truly did exist, but he's a well-known legendary figure. The next day, Wally boards his flight, which, of course, is taken over by terrorists. Safest way to travel my ass. They're no match for him, although he does break his hand in the process, but luckily, he has medical. Wally returns home to his apartment to see the birthday bunting still up. A tad depressed, he turns on the TV to see the lottery results and discover he's a millionaire. He then spots a birthday present and opens it. It is a heart, and Vendel Savage emerges from the shadows and tells Wally to don his costume. Live as the Flash. Die as the Flash. You know, when you read it like that, this, this, this issue's actually quite bland, isn't it? Yeah. Surely when I read the, the synopsis like that, you think, oh, not really a lot of interest happened. No. That's, Flash ran a bit. That's how I felt with it, and it wasn't even some interest in running. No. It was Flash grounded. Oh, no. No. Just... <laughs> no. Um, I mean, it's not a bad structured story. The events in the early half do get a payoff in the same issue, even though it's a continued narrative. So page one, Wally buys his lottery ticket, which he only does because he's got some extra change after buying six, whatever, Babe Ruth's. Yeah. Are they chocolate bars? I don't know. I presume that they're chocolate bars. I presume he's not actually buying six babies named Ruth. <laughs> what would he do with them? I don't believe it's, for a second that the Flash eats babies, no matter how hungry he gets. very specific. We've got five Ruths and one Claire. Is that all right? <laughs> no. I want six <laughs> babies named Ruth. Or this transaction just isn't happening. No, I, pre- I think they're a chocolate bar. Yeah. I think Bear Brews are a chocolate bar. Never had one. I'm sure they're lovely. Uh, the graffiti on page one states that Perez rules, which okay. of course he does, yeah. doesn't he? And he's obviously had a long history drawing Wally West and the Titans over in the pages of uh, Teen Titans, obviously. Political soapbox time. Right. Lana Lang, yeah. when she was cast in Smallville, right. they cast a brunette actress. Girl with black hair, jet black hair. Okay. Kristen Crook had Instead right. of Lana's traditional Auburn dresses, yeah. okay. which Annette O'Toole had when she was in Superman 3, yep. and Stacey Haydock had in Superboy. Okay. So in those two instances, they, they followed canon. Right. Jimmy Olsen has never, as far as I recall, right. been played in live action by a genuine ginger. Right. And this trend has continued into the new Supergirl show, where he's not played by a man with ginger hair. Okay. I, for one, right. am fed up... Of this persecution, this blanket discrimination okay. against the ginger people. When Wally West makes his inevitable appearance in the new Flash TV show, right. he better be a goddamn ginger. <laughs> or I'm starting a movement. Okay. A bowel movement, possibly, yeah. but still a movement. Right. Are you with me, brother? I'm, I'm with you. Solidarity. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Wally West had better be a ginger. Just like Barry Allen is totally blonde in the Flash. Shush! <laughs> Well, the, the, the blondes, of which I was one, right? Was. We, we we we're comfortable. Oh yeah. In our in our self esteem. So are you, trying to, are you trying to say the gingers of low self esteem? No, no, no. What I'm saying is, is to fight no, for them. What I'm saying is that they need their own role models. Yeah. Okay. You know, that's what I'm saying. We've, we've only got Damian Lewis. Right. And um, who's the girl who played Hermione? 
Emma, Emma Watson. Watson. Yeah. And yeah. her. Okay. So there's there's Hermione. Yeah. And guy from Homeland. Great. And that's it. <laughs> Snelkin goes from. It's it's dependent on your gender. Yeah. I mean, he was also in Life, which was great. Okay. He was yeah. Charlie Cruz, so he was good in that. Right. So. Alright. See, so I want a Wally West to be ginger. Right. I think that has to happen. Okay. Or I'm going to start complaining. Tennis says he's got dark hair. You reckon? Yeah. <laughs> Tennis says he's probably got a shaved head. <laughs> yeah, Tennis says he might be a woman. <laughs> well, Wally isn't a gender-specific name, is it? It's not. She, right. It could be Waltine. Waltina. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And she's just called just, Wally. Just like there's a Jenny Olsen. <laughs> yes. I don't mind Jenny Olsen. It's still not it's, a ginger. But still not a ginger. Hmm? This is the point I'm trying to make. Yeah. Doesn't uh, matter what gender, as long as you get the right hook on. Absolutely right. I want a ginger Wally West. Or I will boycott the Flash TV show. <laughs> Possibly. Until like, the next Until episode. Until the episode actually airs, yeah, and I'll yeah. probably go, oh no, I'll watch it anyway, because I'm not really that bothered. Yeah. And suddenly my, my outrage has disappeared. It's, your whole cause is falling apart. It is, it is. I'm just not very good at it. <laughs> I'm not very good at mock outrage, am I? Are you going to have a placard as well? <laughs> What's a placard? <laughs> is that a Jean Luc placard? <laughs> well, if you have one, you can have your own Enterprise. <laughs> Make it so. Like no 20, for 24 hours, you can be your own placard. <laughs> Copyright. Pick a placard. Any yeah. placard. It's a Chinese bootleg enterprise captain. <laughs> um, at this party, his 20th birthday party. Yeah. So he's no longer a teenager. There are no other family or friends other than his girlfriend and the Teen Titans. A Nightwing can't even be asked to get around. Yeah. He's crammed into the back of one panel. And then he has one conversation to him where he, he, he says, you're no longer a teenager, Wally. And, and Wally's like, yeah, I figured. I am aware of how chronology works. Cheers, dick. Yeah. And then he just disappears. Yeah. There's no sign of Nightwing at the rest of these. just like, right, I've, I've done my bit, Corey. Can I go now? Because mm. I've never really liked him. <laughs> does, does, does Wally not have a secret identity? No. Right, so all these Teen Titans can just hang out in his apartment. Oh, well, as evidenced by the fact that later on they've got in touch with him via yeah. Teen Titans and they've given them his real name. Yeah. So Wally West was well known to be the Flash at this, Kid Flash, because he'd given up being Kid Flash because his powers kept fritzing out. Right. I don't know how they fixed that post-crisis, so I don't remember. So he doesn't have a secret identity? No, not anymore. So when he's on the plane, yes. he has to explain who he is? Yeah, well, no, he does. He just says, I'm Bolly West, I'm the Flash. But when he's in the hospital, he, when he, he's not wearing costume, they're like, oh, you'll have to you'll have to leave. Yes, well, my favourite bit, I mean, I've got this note later, but we may as well make it now, now you've brought it up. When he wakes up in the hospital after 17 hours of sleep, the first thing yeah. he says is, did anyone remove my mask? Yeah. And I'm reading this going, what would it matter if they did? You don't have a secret ID. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I suppose there's a difference between everyone technically knowing his name and knowing his face. I guess. But he's he's out there as being the Flash. He Presumably spends, you can Google him. He spends half this issue out of his costume anyway. Yeah. He, so. he fights the, the jackers on the plane out of costume. Yeah, but he does that so fast nobody sees him. But someone does see him, though. Apart from the person that does see him. Yeah. Obviously. <laughs> Stop poking holes in it. <laughs> uh, Jackson Grice is a pretty good artist, but his proportions are off in some places. On page two, Wonder Girl is lopsided, isn't she? She's got a very, very tiny head for the body that she's given. Yeah, yeah. And on page four, both Wally and Francine look awful. Francine's eye, one of her eyes is much lower than the other one. Yeah, it is. It looks like an Escher painting. Is that Escher? No, it's other guy. Who am I thinking of? Spoofing uh, his eyes, Sarah. Oh, oh. Picasso. Yes. Him. 
So that that's a bit. Other than that, the art's pretty pretty strong throughout the issue. Yeah, but for but that that panel stuck out because the art's pretty good everywhere else. It may be the inking because be. Wally looks like his eyes all too far up his head. It does. So it could be that the inking's a little bit too heavy on those scenes. I personally didn't think there was a big deal that Wally wanted something in return for doing this. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, because his secret identity's out. Mm. He's got no other form of income. Yeah. As he points out, the doctor's making money off this. Yeah. The person doing the heart surgery's making money off this. If they paid a courier service to do this, key word though, pay, Yeah. why do they suddenly think the Flash is, is going to do this for free? Maybe that's why they phone him. What, because they think he's going to do it for free? You could easily get the heart to where they want it in five hours. They just, they're, they're taking the superheroes for granted. And then he says, no, I won't pay you. Yeah. And they grumble about it. Yeah. I, if I was him, I'd be like, screw you. That, that should have been a story somewhere. What? That superheroes are, are sick of being taken for granted and start charging. What, like in the Superman issue we covered the, last week? Yeah. Where the scientist just phones Superman and says, I'm working on an experiment. <laughs> You're not busy. Why don't you just pop by? There should be a superhero union. <laughs> now, I would help you, but my union prevents it. My union prevents me from just going and seeing some random scientist yeah. without booking an appointment and without me clearly knowing what you're doing. Because the last time this happened, I pressed a button on a machine. <laughs> Next thing you know, my mind's transferred. I would help you, but I'm on my five-minute super fag break. <laughs> I would help you, but I just clocked off. <laughs> go, go and check on with Elongated Man. He's, he just signed in. <laughs> elongated Man's just make himself a coffee. <laughs> oh, man. I like that idea. Yeah. Batman say, no, no, I'm off duty now. <laughs> oh, dear me. I did like as well him asking for them to pay for a plane ticket home. Because yeah. he's just run for however many miles he doesn't want to run back home. Yeah, I liked he was a more... A, a realistic runner. Yeah. Did you have a problem with him asking for some kind of payment for this? No, I liked it. No. Because it's one of the things they're always getting on Booster Goals back about, isn't it? That yeah. he's sponsored. And you're like, so what? Well, it's, it's one of those things where it's not that he's sponsored, he's more kind of selfish about it. Yeah. And whereas... they've, they've gone for the whole, I'm not sure if it was Jeff Johns who first introduced it, but he's a selfless hero who has to hide his identity as a selfish yeah, but the flip side of this is he doesn't have any other income. Yeah. I don't see any problem with him charging for this. Now, granted, he wouldn't charge to prevent a mugging, yeah. the, as he doesn't when he comes across one. Hmm. But for a job like this, if they had paid a courier service, they would have had to pay the courier and service. He's, he's only asking for medical insurance anyway. Yeah. He's not like outright asking, give me money. And it's only a, a clandestine deal with that hospital. Yeah. So it'll probably be off book. Hmm. Everyone in there will know about it, but if he shows up injured, the doctor on duty will go, all right, I'll see to her. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so it's probably not even an official thing. So I don't see what the big deal with this was. <laughs> the guy needs medical. Yeah. You know, it's tiring work running. He may pull a hamstring. <laughs> What's all this about Barry dying owing a ton of money in legal bills? Is that the trial of the Flash that they're I, referring to? I don't to? know. Which, if memory serves, was pre-crisis. Right, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And he disappeared to live happily ever after with Iris on Earth 2. Yeah. So did that now not happen because there was no Earth 1 on Earth 2, but the trial still did happen? Yeah. You see how all this is a tad confusing even for readers at the time? Yeah. I'm sure they explained all that eventually. And when he says the Justice League had to pay for the funeral, I presume he means Bruce Wayne paid for the funeral. Probably. <laughs> 
I can just see Superman goes to the back cave. Bruce, yeah, what do you want, Clark? Got this funeral coming up. Barry, kind of didn't have any money. Oh, Jesus, this again? Do we, do we not? Do we not have league funds? Do we not have a whip round? <laughs> can you not? You you work? Well, well. See, one of us is an Amazonian, and they don't have need for money there. And, and I'm on a journalist salary. <laughs> See, but you, you're a billionaire. You're Daddy Warbucks. Yeah. You mean I could go and ask Lex Luthor, but oh, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> I wonder how much uh, uh, the Martian Manhunter gets paid for his pi <laughs> Well, he will charge the flat, standard PI salary of $250 a day plus expenses, won't it? Right, okay. Because that's what Thomas Magnum charged. Right. I think that's what Jim Rockford charged. Right. So probably Philip Marlowe probably charged that as well. It's not like he needs to eat much other than Oreos. No, no, no. So yeah, that, that's his expenses bill. Yeah. Box of Oreos yeah. from Walmart. eight ninety nine. <laughs> <laughs> Bottle of milk. All his expenses. Well, he goes through the expenses. This all you ever eat and drink? Mm. I suppose it, w- it would be a bit of a giveaway that Bruce Wayne's Batman, if if, if Wayne Enterprises is paying for the Justice League funds. Oh no 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 no! He played. He paid. Sorry, with George Clooney's back credit card. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> There's a wonderful, cliched bit in this comic that did make me laugh out loud while I was reading it. When the PR who's dying says. Vandal Savage, there's a thunderclap. <laughs> <laughs> that was brilliant. There's one every time Vandal Savage. Every time somebody says something. Vandal Savage, there's a thunderclap. <laughs> <laughs> Which was such a campy touch in an otherwise really serious comic book. Yeah, it's yeah. like all of a sudden he's writing a carry on film <laughs> in the middle of this serious comic. I think Vandal Savage makes the, the noise himself. You think? Yeah. You think Vandal Savage? Every time he just goes. There's, there's the implication he's he's following the Flash around, so he, he makes his own sound effects. Yeah. He's like that Family Guy who wants his own theme tune. <laughs> Vandal Savage has a big boombox <laughs> with his own sound effects on it. <laughs> he's got a he's got a cassette tape of great BBC <laughs> sound effects volume four. And the name Varney Sack just made me laugh. I don't know why, because it's not funny, and it's not even its not even in the slightest bit rude. Yeah. But I, I thought Varney Sack was such a stupid name. <laughs> Reg Varney Sack. Uh, Wally passes out in the hospital after running for a good number of hours, which was a nice touch. Again, it is pleasant, though he gets... He has to eat a lot in this incarnation, doesn't yeah. he? Because they rip this off for the... Uh, the TV show, the John Wesley Shipp TV show. But he's a bit of a tit to the nurse. Yeah. The nurse isn't doing anything here other than her job. She says, we've not took your mask off, we're just looking after you, you, don't, you shouldn't really leave, you just walk up. And he says, I appreciate your concern, but I'm not a patient. Bye. He's yeah. a bit of a tit to her, isn't he? Yeah. I don't like people being tits to nurses. Well, we've got this food on, he's like, ah, no, I'm going to go get some fast food. I'm going to go to McDonald's. And it is actually a McDonald's. It is. Which surprised me. Why is it not Big Belly Burger? I, I don't or know. Or Captain Belly Buster. I don't as know. it was in The Greatest American Hero. Is it actually called McDonald's or yeah. is it just a big M? No. McDonald's. Alright. It is actually a McDonald's. I, I would have thought that was considered advertising. And in the DC universe they have their own yeah, yeah. versions of these things, don't they? Like um, soda cola and, and yeah. stuff. So that was quite unusual. That it was actually a real McDonald's. Maybe Seattle has a real McDonald's. Yeah. But when you're in like Metropolis or Gotham or something like that, they have fake McDonald's. Yeah, and that makes sense. Yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. Uh, the terrorist bit on the the uh, plane at the end is quite a funny scene. It it's hard to imagine them 
playing a terrorist takeover an aeroplane scene for laughs nowadays. Yeah. But in 1987, that's exactly what they did with this. I did like as well that Wally doesn't have super strength, mm. but basically punching somebody in the face 25 times in two seconds would be quite painful. It would be, when, when one's just not enough. Yeah, well, he's knocking him out, isn't he? Yeah. Because he, he tries to do this at super speed, but fails miserably because a stewardess spots him. And then he asks for six dinners. Yeah. Which was... I think he has to pay for it all. Uh, no, I would imagine that he just gets it charged to the... It's on the plane. Oh, okay. It's all played for, isn't it? Is it? I noticed they've not paid for him to travel first class. Yeah. So they've only booked him a coach ticket back. Well, of course, yeah. Of course they have. Now, if they're in NHS, that would be understandable. <laughs> yeah. But here, you know, he's paying for medical insurance. Oh. Or he's arranged a deal for medical insurance. I want first class travel. Yeah. As a superhero. This would go to my head. <laughs> The bit earlier on when he's he's talking to the writer, yeah, and he asked her about Vandal Savage, yes, it was Vandal Savage, not a known bad guy. At this no, we're post crisis now. Right, okay. Nothing is known. Nothing existed before. Okay. Apart from Barry Allen and the Trial of the Flash and all of his adventures as Wally West as a kid, right. Flash, all of that presumably happened. But this stuff, no, nobody knows who Vandal Savage is. Okay. Alright, but ignoring ignoring him getting out of his costume to go get some fast food to go back to the hospital to see the writer to then get in his costume again just because she asked him to. Yes. Ignoring that, she, when when he asked her who Vandal Savage is, she's like, oh, he's a great force of darkness and blah, 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 blah. Yeah, the writing was awful. Instead of just saying he's a bad dude. Yeah. The writing, the writing there was really... The writing, for the most part, in this was alright. Because she doesn't help him at all. He still doesn't know who Vandal Savage is. No, she just says he's an ancient legend. He may or may not exist, but he is a force of darkness. And in the background, you can hear... Kaboom! Yeah. Even though you don't actually get one on this panel. Yeah. Yeah, the writing there was, was quite overwrought, I'm afraid. The Flash's secret identity being out, though, like you said earlier on, is quite good, because it basically means when the authorities say what went on here, he just says, I'm the Flash. Yeah. And they go, oh, all right. <laughs> do they have Justice League cards like the Avengers do? Uh, the Justice League didn't exist at this point. Did it not? No. Justice well, League America's not come into being yet. But it's in Green Lantern, which came out... Let's have a say, June 1987. No! Oh, I'm trying to think of a... Because in Legends... Yes, right. you're right, because in Legends, Superman declines to join the Justice League, doesn't right, he? Right, yeah. And Legends happened just before this. Yeah. So you're right, there is a Justice League at this point. So but whether but Wally's not a member of the Justice League, isn't he? He's, he ultimately becomes a member of the Justice League Europe. Right, yeah. So he's not actually a member of the Justice League. Is he yet. still a Titan or is he left by now? No, well, again, if we're going with post-crisis, he quit the Titans, remember? Yeah, yeah. So whether that still factors in, I don't know. But if he's just said, I'm the Flash, and they've gone, all right, well, you caught us a couple of terrorists, cheers. Well, it must be factored in because we saw Dick as Nightwing. Yeah. So, yeah, presumably all that still happened until yeah. they changed the mind and it didn't. Yeah. So, alright, fair enough. I can live with that. Uh, the ending, though, takes suspension out the uh, out the back and puts two in the back of its head, gangland style. We're supposed to believe that Vandal Savage, right, yeah. has followed the Flash home, stood in the corner of Wally's apartment in the dark all night... Just waiting for him to open that present that's been on that box for... How long is he opening here? A good couple of hours. Because he comes home and he sits and he watches for the TV. Yeah. And he eats his dinner and then he sits pensively by the open window. And then he finally gets around to opening the box, which is... It is a heart, right? Yeah. Where's he got that from? 
Are we meant to believe that that's Thingyo's heart? It could be. Eugenie's. So Vandal Savage knew that the Flash was moving a heart yeah. across country. Oh, and he has then gone and ripped her heart out, so he did all that for nothing. Yeah. I don't know if that's true. Or it's just the PIs. Or it's just the PIs, like yeah. Like, went back to... Yeah, either way. I should have dug issue two out, really, yeah. and had a look if this was Eugenie's. But anyway, all of that happens... He, you know, he watches him eat, he wins the lottery, he watches him take a dump, he watches him tug one off to palm, he then watches the late show, and he just stands there and waits just so he can do this dramatic reveal after Wally opens the box and he can turn the light on. Yeah. That is commitment to the art of villainy. I think he just stood in the corner snickering. Yeah, all night, <laughs> just waiting for Wally to, to open that box. I mean, I, I can't imagine that at some point he must have been looking at his watch going, Jesus, dude, get on with it. <laughs> yeah. But just just snickering in the corner and he's, he's, he's seen it and, yeah. <laughs> ah Vandal Savage cocoon <laughs> what was his, his Peter Griffin impression <laughs> uh, yeah you're I've waited five hours for that you bad <laughs> well he's, he's great so yeah he done only does he do the crack a <laughs> but he turns the light on in a dramatic way <laughs> so he's got his own lighting system where he's underlit <laughs> so he looks mean and nasty and he's got a speed box with crack a boom on it <laughs> Such a committed bad guy. And what if that lamp had died off and broke? <laughs> oh, the bulb had popped? <laughs> yeah, the road and the bundle Sammy Sally went, Booger! <laughs> yeah. He's a, he's a committed bad guy. I think, I think that's the, the conclusion that we... Uh, I've waited five centuries for this. <laughs> and the bloody light bulb went. <laughs> um, for me... Speaking just for myself, I'll ask Michael his opinion in a minute. The Flash series, in its early days, was an indicator this was a new DC. It wasn't all kids stuff anymore. As the house ads stated at the time, DC Comics not just for kids. There's a decidedly adult tone to the proceedings and very little way in the the way of the light-hearted fun of, of the Silver Age comics, despite the fact we just took the piss out of some of this quite, quite mercilessly. Now, to be fair, Flash comics had been darkening for a while, with the death of Iris Allen at the hands of Reverse Flash and the trial of the Flash. But tonally, this was light years away from earlier Flash comics. And at least the Flash wasn't just doing it as a response to Dark Knight, because it did all that pre the Dark Knight. There are some heavy themes to this issue. It's heart transplants, the subjects of actually paying a superhero, and the amped-up violence level, whilst nowhere near close to what we see today, being a little bit shocking at the time. And whilst there's no blood or gore, the whole story feels more adult and more mature and more sophisticated than the DC books of the 70s. Perhaps it feels a little too much like it's trying too hard to be sophisticated and mature. And whilst this certainly is a harbinger of, of things to come, there's very little fun in this comic. Again, despite the fact that we just took the piss out of it for ten yeah. minutes. It's all very serious, isn't it? And it's very straight-faced and... Perhaps DC realised this because Mike Barron would not stick around for long. He only right. wrote it for the first year or so. And then he'd be replaced by William Messner Loeb's, who brought the fun in, and then later Mark Wade, who basically turned the series into a blast. But it took a while to get there. It is a good read. Mm. It fur blasts along. It's got a very simple plot, as you could tell from the synopsis. But there's enough interesting elements to the story to make it intriguing and make you want to come back for more. I did want to read the next issue to see how all this had panned out, which is always a good sign. Yeah. Very serious, though, isn't it? Which is where it kind of falls flat a bit. What did you think of it? There were some interesting things. The trying to find his identity, the metabolism, 
wanting to be paid. But ultimately, it, it just feels stale. It's flat. There's no fun to it, and it's it's too serious that it's just it, it's it's too serious. You want to mock it, but it's not fun enough to mock. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's trying so very very hard to be edgy and adult, yeah. and yet at the end of the day, it's the Flash. Yeah, you, you know when you're in you're in school and you you read in a book and the teacher asks the person who can't read to read out. And they're reading it like this, and they're taking forever. That's how it felt to read this. Right. It it, it just did feel very flat. Okay. So you weren't a fan of that, then? I was not a fan of it. Okay, see, I thought it was a little bit better than you did, but I, I do think it is... It's trying too hard, mm. I think is the problem with it. Unlike The Flash, The Green Lantern was also not restarted, at least not initially. Instead, a different tack was taken with The Green Gladiator. Whilst there was no her apparent to the Green Lantern's ring as there was the mantle of the Scarlet Speedster, being part of a core meant there were already a few Green Lanterns knocking about on Earth, and as such the focus was to be on the three main Lanterns of Sector 2814, John Stewart, Guy Gardner and mainstay Hal Jordan. Jordan had a few more things in common with The Flash. Both Hal and Barry were replacement heroes for their Golden Age counterparts and were part of a line of what is called Legacy Heroes, a situation whereby the elder hero retires and is replaced by a younger, more financially viable version of the character. Now, personally, I think Legacy Heroes are a load of hooey. And I've just heard an awful lot of people go, What? Because <laughs> Legacy Heroes have a lot of fans. But I think that unless there's a specific precedent set i.e. with the Green Lantern Corps, I think legacy characters just muddy the waters. They dilute whatever it was that made the original popular and end up being resented by fans of the original characters even as they pick up new fans, which ends up just causing a schism in the readerships. And then companies like Marvel and DC, in their efforts to do as much as possible to appease everybody, Mm. end up pleasing nobody. We saw it here post-crisis, where no matter how good a job DC did with Wally West, they still got left to say, when's Barry Allen coming back? Yeah. So that continued to happen. We're seeing it today, with a small but loud minority demanding that the new Spider-Man movies be about Miles Morales instead of Peter Parker. The spurious reasoning being that Peter's had five movies and only two of them were any good, as if that's the character's fault. Yeah, yeah. Whereas, you know, Peter Parker has a 50-odd year worth of legacy behind him. Yeah. And most people know Peter Parker. Let's say they did a Miles Morales movie and it's not done by Bendis and it's crap. Well, would Bendis write the script? Well, my point is, only Bendis has written Miles Morales. Yeah. So... He'll be, you know, he won't be great. And he's a legacy character. Yeah. He's just, he, he took up the mantle of Spider Man after Peter Parker died, didn't he, in the yeah. Ultimate Universe? And so you've diluted that. We've just seen, we've just seen this play out on Facebook that schism in readership because you've got legacy characters. And I'm watching all this unfold on Facebook what and I'm going, no, the, the amount of people who were saying, no, the new film should be Miles. Oh, right, Very right, small, right. Yeah. but vocal minority of people saying it should be Miles Morales in the new ones. And you're like, and the the the, the news reporter play, people played into this because right. they were like, Marvel announced that the new Spider-Man film was going to be Peter Parker. They kind of announced that the minute the Sony deal was announced. Yeah, it was like, what is the big deal with this? Now maybe they'll do Miles further down the line when yeah. you screw up the next batch of Spider-Man movies. But for now, it was going to be Peter Parker. Okay, as a, as a movie, Miles Morales just doesn't work. Why? 
Because I've not read enough to know, so... Yeah, because, say, I've, I've not read any Miles Morales. I just know that as a legacy character, he won't work as a movie um, Because Peter Parker would have to die... Because the that, majority of the movie-going audience don't yeah, have a rat's exactly. ass that does an ultimate universe. Or even if they know who Miles Morales is, mm. you're not going there to see anyone other than Peter Parker Spider-Man. Right. See, I, that, watching it all play out on Facebook just made me think, no, I'm right about Legacy Hero. Because, yeah. You can write in and complain, lovely listener. <laughs> I will listen to what you have to say, because I know there's a lot of you out there right at this moment going, but, but, Kyle Rayner, but, but, Wally West, but, but, Bart Allen. <laughs> uh, and every one of those instances kind of proves my point. Yeah, Flash Rebirth. Yeah. Confusing, convoluted because of Legacy characters. Yeah, so, you know. Anyway, here... They played the legacy angle for all it was worth. And to emphasise the change, Hal was made to appear to be a little bit older than he appeared pre-crisis, sporting the traditional comic shorthand for getting on a bit, i.e. he has grey sideburns. So basically it looks like Reed Richards wearing a Green Lantern costume. He does, yeah. <laughs> uh, this is an interesting contrast to the more recent reboot of DC's line where everybody was made younger. Mm. As if they were all part of some CWTV version rather than adhering to any kind of real-life paradigm. Aging fictional characters is always problematic. Yeah. As far as I'm concerned. Especially with the arrested nature of superhero comics to begin with. But having some characters be older than others isn't a bad thing. Mm. And I, I liked it more with the next comic we're going to cover than with this one. Yeah. I felt it worked better with Oliver Queen than it worked with, with Hal Jordan. It's more shorthand for maturity, though. Yeah. You know he's got a career behind him as Green Lantern. Well, it does beg the question in readers' minds, doesn't it, how much of Hal's history happened? Well, that was Emerald Dawn. Because this was the first issue, mm. so because of Crisis, to use Emerald Dawn to show you the beginning of his career alongside what's going on now yeah so the, the the Flash appeared in the Legends miniseries yeah. so he didn't have his own miniseries but yeah Green Lantern as with Superman had Emerald Dawn that's uh, so what that retold Hal's origin yeah and it, didn't it piss off a lot of people by having him be a drunk driver is uh, that Emerald Dawn or am I misremembering yeah it that? is because he gets arrested at the yes beginning, yeah. so that annoyed a lot of people yeah Hal was a drunk driver have you read Emerald Dawn I have I've got it I've read Emerald Dawn yeah is it good? Because I don't remember. Uh, I think I remember uh, liking it. Right, okay. If you're interested in Emerald Dawn, Sean Engel covered it on his podcast, Just One of the Guys. Mm. So go and check that out. Because we're not covering that here. We're not. No. We are looking at Green Lantern number one, cover dated June 1990, which has a cover by Pat Broderick of the 3GL Zooming Through the Grand Canyon. The long-awaited return of DC's greatest cosmic heroes is the cover copy. It does what it needs to, doesn't it? Yeah, three Green Lanterns flying through the Grand Canyon. It's good. I like it. It is all right, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, I like Pat Broderick. Pat Broderick. Yeah, I release Broderick. <laughs> release Woodwick. <laughs> I really like the art in this. It it changes sometimes. Yeah, Pat Broderick. It was a severely underrated artist. I don't know what he's doing now. Right. He, he, I don't recall him having a long run on anything. Mm. He'd kind of always pitch hit on. He did a couple issues of Battlestar Galactica, and I know he did a few Spider-Man's. Yeah. Um, did he have a long run on something that I'm forgetting? Maybe he did. Did he do all 50 issues of this? No. Right. I don't think he stuck around for more than a year or so. Didn't Joe Staten take over at some point? I don't know. I don't think Pat Broderick sticks around for a long time, which is a shame, because he's quite good. Down to Earth was written by Gerard Jones, with art by Wadwick, or at least Wadwick and Bruce Patterson. Always shoe on a Monty Python reference when you can. 
Fifteen years on from the first time he donned the ring of the Green Lantern Corps, Hal Jordan is undergoing a midlife crisis. Whether this is pre or post is unclear, but Hal is starting to feel like he is defined by the ring and doesn't really have any idea who Hal Jordan is. He drops by the JLA, but Guy Gardner acts like a massive cock, so Hal leaves. In a subplot, the other Green Lantern of the cover, John Stewart, cracks up, looks like he has PTSD, and then goes back to the core home planet of Oa and finds a dead body. Back on Earth, Hal hits the road, as he did many years ago, heading back to Desolation, a place he visited, though those many years ago. Now the place is called Hope Springs, and Hal hopes to hook up with a girl he met there, Rose Lewis. He takes a job as a farmhand for room and board at Rose's farm, and the sexual tension gets so thick it makes it hard to see. Fortunately, Rose is a widow. Fortunate for Hal, perhaps, not for her husband, obviously. The next day, Gar Gardner shows up and acts like a massive cock yet again, and his arrival freaks Rose out. Realising he's not going to get lucky here, Hal hits the road again. Gonna be honest with you, based on that synopsis, this was a really boring comic. Did you think? Um, yeah, actually. Yeah, because nothing happens like it does in The Flash, but I, I enjoyed it. It was fun to read. It had moments. Uh, I think this was the lesser of the three. Well, we'll, we'll get to we'll get to our thoughts when we let's go through the issue first. Uh, first pre post crisis wobble of the issue occurs on the first players. Green Lantern Hal Jordan says it's been fifteen years since he first found the ring that earned him the title of Green Lantern. But in Man of Steel, yeah. hasn't Superman only been around six or seven years? So uh, is Green, yeah. does Green Lantern now predate Superman in the DC universe? I guess so. See, I always thought Superman was the first superhero. Well, it's one of those things where I, I quite liked it because he made it work, but only in the confines of this issue. Yeah, within the wider confines of the DC. Yeah. Maybe we'll go back to the email earlier on. If one issue exists in its own little vacuum, yeah. and if it happens to, to coincide with another issue, that's just dumb luck. Yeah. It's one of those things where, whilst we were complaining about legacy heroes before, I think Green Lantern works... Because well, that, that was my point. Yeah. The exception of the Green Lantern Corps, which yeah. I can live with, I don't think they work. Mm. Now, I don't think... Was the Green Lantern Corps an established part of the mythos before Hal Jordan? I don't uh, recall. Not, I don't think it was before Hal Jordan. I don't recall whether Hal became it, yeah. a retcon of some kind. But I think this works because carrying on from Crisis, yeah. you had Hal Jordan, who was before that, who has now come back now. Mm. Uh, you had Guy Gardner, who became Green Lantern during Crisis, mm-hmm. so he's carrying on from that. You, you had Emerald... And you've got John Stewart, who he met in Hard Travelling Heroes. Yeah, and uh, Emerald Dawn establishes that uh, his Hal Jordan's new pre-Crisis history. Yeah. And you've got John Stewart cracking up from that miniseries where he kills that planet. Yes. So there's an awful lot in here that they don't that is picking up the threads of earlier series that yeah. they just don't mention where that's come from. Mm. Essentially, this is an issue one, so I should really have my information. Yeah. I mean, your mention of, of John Stewart is interesting because that's the second post-crisis wobble. Desolation was a town Green Lantern and Green Arrow visited in Green Lantern issue 77, right. over dated June 1970. So again, not everything was wiped out in the crisis. Yeah. Well, it's one of those things where did Man of Steel happen... As it came out. No, Man of Steel was seven years before Superman issue one. Right, so that... See, but here, Green Lantern, Hal Jordan's been Green Lantern 15 years. So how old was Green... So is Green Lantern supposed to be about 45 now? Yeah, I guess. If he was 30 when he got... I mean, I suppose he could be 40. 
Yeah, it's one of those things where unless the dates are specified, they can slide around anyway. Yeah, but, well, Green Arrow, Oliver Queen, is definitively given the age of being 44. Yeah. And he's contemporary with Hal Jordan. Hmm. So presumably Hal's now in his early 40s in this issue. Yeah. So, which, on the first bit, there's nothing wrong with. It's far preferable to having them all be 20-something Jensen Ackles wannabes. Yeah. In it. Mm. Which, you know, there's nothing really wrong with that, per se. Although he is a bit of a jerk to the poor campus, he jumps off that big mountain like Captain Kirk, go climb a rock, and he falls all the way to the floor, and then at the last minute he whips off the, the Green Lantern ring, turns into Green Lantern, and completely wrecks the camp. Yeah. What a tit! Well, there's, there's no need for him to jump that far down anyway. I mean, is he not just broken his neck? He's just showing off. True. Basically. I mean, you know, there they are, minding their own business. And this guy just falls from the sky, flips up, trashes the campsite. Especially funny when later on Hal's referred to as the mature one. Yeah. Yeah, you know he's flying away from this going... <laughs> like, mutley. Yeah. Uh, Hal visits the JLA for a bit where he encounters Guy Gardner, who is, with all deference to my good chum, Sean Engel, portrayed as a massive tool. Yeah, because he's not even provoked or anything. No, he's, he's just... He's deliberately confrontational. He changes his position within an argument just to keep the argument going. Yeah. And he's just a general loudmouth, obnoxious asswipe Especially when he shows that he goes out of his way later on to show up just to carry an argument. Yeah, he's just an arrogant tool. He does improve in the various books, JLA books written by DeMatteis and Giffen, but his appearance does nothing here to endear him to an audience, does but what it? what was this scene even for? Just to, to introduce us to Guy Gardner? And to show us that Hal doesn't want to be part of the, the Justice League. So why did he have to go to the Justice League to decide he didn't want to be part of the Justice League? Because he went to the Justice League because he thought that's where he belonged. Right, okay. He thought that he belonged there, and then he quickly realises, no, this isn't where I belong. Well, it's not his Justice League. I'm not going to find my answers here. Yeah, the only member of his Justice League there is Batman. Yeah. And he has a relatively sensible and mature conversation with Batman where he basically says, no, I'm just, I'm not going to find what I need here. I'm going to have to go away and find myself. Which was one of the main problems with it, I'll be honest with you, because, you know, given that I think that any story about anyone trying to find themselves is about as interesting as a steady diet of rice and beans, this put the issue on the back foot for me. I always think that's just going to be wanky noodling. Oh, I'm going to find myself. Well, oh, wait, I, I, I care, but when you think about one of your favourite comics of all time is about a man finding God. Yeah, Preacher. Yeah, yeah, but that's a man finding a God who has deserted his people. That's a completely <laughs> different thing. Uh, I, I would... Uh, you cannot sit there with a straight face <laughs> and argue to me that Jesse Cutster is one of those whiny, noodly art studenty types <laughs> who is desperate to find the inner meaning of his own soul. No, I'm, I'm not saying that, but... Is there much of a difference between finding God and finding yourself? Yes, because Jesse is searching for God with a very specific reason, and that's him to hold him to account for what he's done, or in this case, in the case of the preacher story, not done. But Hal Jordan has a definite reason for trying to find himself. Yeah, he's whining. (laughs) (laughs) Get over yourself. Fight some bad guys, because that's what I want to (laughs) see. Um, Rose 
Bruce was a very problematic character. I did like the John Stewart scene. I kind of blew it off in the synopsis, but I did like that because that was quite interesting to see him go through what he's going through. Mm. So that though he's got a very definitive reason, definitive reason for questioning who he is yeah. and what he stands for. Hal's just being a bit noodly. Okay, okay in yeah. my humble opinion, uh, Rose's relationship is very odd. Did you not think this? Um, was this just badly written? I thought it was very kind of stereotypical. Oh, I'm I'm widowed, but don't think I'm going to give in to you, man. Yeah, well, and then, mean, and then she, Hal knows her. Yeah. Doesn't he? Yeah. And then when he meets her after all this time, but she gives no evidence that she knows him. Mm. There is no element of recognition. She actually says, I wish I could help you, mister. Like, she doesn't know who he is. Yeah. So does she not remember him? But a few pages after talking to him... As if they've only just met, she's ready to jump into bed with it. Yeah, I, I did get that. Like in in, in almost the same page. Yeah. Oh, I, I'm I'm not I'm not giving myself to any other man. Oh, you a big strong man, Mister. Yeah, and you know he stood there just his jeans with no top on. I'm sorry, you don't fling a pickaxe wearing jeans and cowboy boots. <laughs> you know, maybe proper manly boots. Nothing, yeah. There's not nothing no manly about cowboy boots, but unless the cowboy boots were working on the farm. Yeah, yeah, and jeans were designed for rough work. Ranch boots. So, yeah, so all right, I'll get all right. I'll backtrack on that a bit. I'll say okay. that's perfectly okay. But he's got his top off, so he's definitely flirting with her because she's like, "Look at my big manly sex." He's showing off because he's he's a bit of a wimp with that pickaxe. Yes, but I just thought she was really poorly written. Yeah, she either doesn't know him or she does know him. She doesn't want him. But then she's throwing herself at him, and then she's all about the dead husband, which was convenient. Yeah, for for Hal. And then he starts talking about planets, and she's all, we ain't having none of that hogwash. Yeah. This planet was created 2,000 years ago. <laughs> so, no, just, none of that just worked for me. And I'm glad, I was going to ask you, was she deliberately badly written? I, I didn't know. It didn't work, did it? No. Either way. John Stewart, going back to a destroyed O, was pretty interesting. Oh! Uh, yeah. We haven't done that for a while. Although, f- 50 issues later, it's going to be destroyed again. Yeah, by Hal. Yeah. When he becomes Parallax. Mm-hmm. Mirroring. Did we mention that? I don't know. I don't, I don't, think, I don't, ever, I don't think he's I don't ever think mentioned being Parallax. mentioned being Parallax before. I thought Parallax was what made his her grey. No. So have they retconned this that he's already under the influence of Parallax? That was a retcon later. Oh, yeah. right. So so this issue is her shouldn't be grey. I think, I think the retcon was he started doubting himself because of... A parallax infecting him, and that's what turned his hair grey. Right. See, I suppose you could reckon that parallax is already infecting him here. Um, the art's got a very Brian Bolland feel to it. Well, the flash on it, a very um, Ethan Van Skeever yes. feel to it. Yes, you're right. Yeah, I do like that he makes a construct of a finger and just flicks guy in the face. Yeah, that was that was. And then we have a, a massive. Arm and then wrestling. we have an arm wrestle. Guy, you son of a bitch. Yeah, it's just. It's, it's Predator, isn't it? Yeah. Where they will shake hands and it zooms in on the muscles <laughs> in that big masculine... Especially since he's topless. ...homoerotic way. Yeah. That, uh, homoeroticism! <laughs> Yay! So, um... It's okay if it's in an action movie. Yeah, it's alright if it's in an action... Commando! Gayest movie ever. It so is. Fun, though! <laughs> I mean, I do like Commando. <laughs> <But> it's Jenny! <laughs> Jenny! <laughs> so, uh, yeah, anyway, this comic. Um, a very odd relaunch... With all due respect to Sean, who I've got all the time in the world for, this starts off very low-key. And I can be honest, I didn't read this as a kid, but I can't imagine myself being terribly interested in it. And I'm not that interested in now. Mm. It reminded me of Superman Returns. Right. In the the idea that 
we want what we want to see from our larger-than-life cosmic heroes is melancholy stories about a noodling bloke trying to find himself. Yeah. And it, it, as with Superman Returns, it didn't really work for me. I guess it's to try to make it more relatable. It's, it's trying very, very hard to be edgy and adult. Yeah, yeah. Only you think that this handled it better. Yeah. Than, than the Flash. I, I like Green Arrow. I like Hal Jordan. I you meant Lantern. Yeah, I, li- I like I like Green Lantern. I like Green Arrow as well. I do, I do. Well, we're not but, talking about him. Yet. So yeah, I like Hal Jordan as well. And I think this is whilst we don't see much of it, I do, I do quite like more relatable, down to earth characters, I, especially when you still have uh, the Green Lantern elements like Oa and mm. John Stewart being like. I don't mind that. I just I just felt that this as a first issue. As a first, any kind of excitement, adventure, or inherent interest. As, as a first issue, honestly, I think it's more enjoyable reading than The Flash. Yes, stuff happened in The Flash. Not a lot, though. <laughs> but this, to me, was still more this feels of an more interesting and a bigger story. Yeah. Rather than it being a, a first issue. Kyle Rayner's first issue is better than this. Yeah. And maybe they should have gone that route mm. with Green Lantern, but maybe they didn't want to get rid of Hal Jordan and Barry Allen. Hmm. Or maybe just have Barry Allen take on a mentor role and him just not Barry Allen, Hal Jordan, and not be around much anymore. Yeah, but yeah, I think the the first Hal Jordan, the first Kyle Rayner trade, which Mike Bailey sent me, hmm. the first issue of that is better than this. Yeah, that's what I think. I mean, Hal's whiny and mopey, and guys are wanker, <laughs> and John's unhinged. But at least his story arc is interesting. Yeah, because he in has a reason way. for being unhinged. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've read the first year of this. I got them all out of fifty p bins. Right. result uh, and it does become more interesting but this isn't an auspicious beginning no I've, I've only read the ending for this run have I, you? I've read Emerald the Dawn the ending stuff. Uh, no the um, Parallax stuff yeah because we've got that haven't we yeah. again I got it in the 50p then. and uh, yeah, the, that's, yeah Kyle Rayner's relaunch was, was better than that yeah well I've primarily read the Jeff John stuff which is with, with which the power of, a lot with, of with the power of hindsight he's he'd been able to create a more refined Hal Jordan yeah, because prior to the New 52, all of his Green Lantern Rebirth stuff worked within this framework, didn't it? Yeah. Green Lantern Rebirth better than Flash Rebirth? Yes. Is it? Yes. Okay. Because it's not held down by... Um, Having to bring back Time Barry travel and... Yeah. and, and Although they, they've done a good job of that in the TV show. The Speed Force? Uh, yeah. If you and the, the, fla- the Flash Speed Point. Force and Flashpoint. And right, okay. the, the moment, the reverse Flash and all that stuff. Yeah. Yes, they did a really good job with that. Well, they're not held down by years of history no, and they've got hindsight yeah, yeah. as well which is uh, always 2020 yeah isn't it hindsight Green Lantern's pal Green Arrow was also given a new number one in 1988 created by Mort Weisinger and George Papp in 1940 Green Arrow spent a long time in the shadow of the Batman being a rich playboy who dabbles as a superhero and possessing such original items as an arrow car an arrow cave and a teen sidekick here named Speedy rather than Robin in the 1970s, Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams refined him, took away his fortune and gave him a social conscience and some political conviction. In the 1980s, eh, well, we'll leave that for next week. 
In the post-crisis environment, our Emerald Archer, a.k.a. Oliver Queen, was given a brutal and mature update in the really rather excellent three-issue prestige miniseries, The Longbow Hunters. Even more so than The Dark Knight Returns, which is often more parody than story, The Longbow Hunters was written for a mature audience, and Mike Grell's excellent artwork and story carried the series through to a stunning climax. We have covered The Longbow Hunters, but I didn't actually go back and look at what episode that was in. (laughs) Research. Yep. Something that other people do. Oh, you do just not all the time. I just completely forgot about the Longo Hunters. I looked up Legends and then forgot about this. It wouldn't be a show if I didn't make a cock up somewhere. It wouldn't be that. The success of the Longbow Hunters, which, like Green Lantern, established Green Arrow as an older, more seasoned character, all of 44, meant that DC wanted to give Arrow a major revamp and contacted Grell to see if he were interested in continuing with the character. What followed was a Green Arrow book that was not aimed at the newsstands, as all the other titles had been. Rather, Green Arrow returned in a prestige new format book. However, Grell would not be drawing, instead turning his hand only to the writing chores. Ed Hannigan was drafted in to be the artist, although Grell provided the cover for issue one. It's a painted image, a profile shot of Ollie dominating the page with an inset, full body shot of Ollie drawing his bow astride a gorgeous painted image of Seattle. What do you think of that cover? It's it's really good, I like it. That, the Oliver Queen that's drawing the bow back looks a little bit lopsided. He does, yeah. But it could be just the angle. But the painting of it looks... Well, the painting of it is exceptionally good, yeah. You know, there's a part of me that actually thinks that cover would have worked just well without the inset shot of Ollie drawing his bow. Yeah. If it was just a profile shot of Oliver Queen over Seattle. It's probably only there just to show Green Arrow. Yeah, pretty much. I think that would have been much more... Mm. I think that would have been a better cover. Anyway, but uh, too late to do anything about that now, isn't it? Hunter's Moon was written by Grell with art by Anna Hannigan. Alison Hannigan. <laughs> wow, Alison Hannigan draws comic books. Who knew? Uh, yeah. Ed Hannigan and Dick Giordano. Oliver Queen, the green arrow, prowls the streets of Seattle doing what vigilantes do. But at home, recent events still haunt he and Dina Lance. She agrees to see a counsellor to help her through her problems. Elsewhere, a police detective, Jim Cameron, not shitting you, has the delightful job of informing Annie Green that a man that kidnapped and tortured her 18 years ago, Al Munzer, has been released from prison and granted a retrial. Now a doctor and psychiatrist, Green's story is similar to Dina's, and in one of those coincidences that happen all the time in comics, not only are Dina and Ollie her new clients, but she opens her mail in front of them to reveal a button-off address. Shaken, she tells Ollie and Dina that, as a nine-year-old, she was kidnapped and held by a foul man, where he made her hurt so bad she wanted to die. Yeah. She managed to escape, and later Green testified on the stand and got the man Muncie put away. But as heir to the Muncie brewery fortune, he has finally paid off enough people to secure a release. Ollie offers to help. Ollie visits Muncie, despite the tight police security, and warns him to stay away from Annie Green. Muncie protests his innocence in that slimy way that screams, Guilty! But that night, Annie is attacked. Ollie manages to stop the man, but he still manages to elude the Emerald Archer. As with longbow hunters, Oliver's costume is now more Robin Hood than the the standard superhero fur that he used to wear. Uh, And he's very, very similar to what Stephen Amell was on Arrow. Mm. Longbow Hunters and this series in particular are owed quite the debt from that series. Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen a credit for Mike Grell on on Arrow anywhere. And I think he should have one. Mm. Given that I don't think without Longbow Hunters and this, we don't have an Arrow television show. Yeah. Uh, We didn't pick this up when it was first released. In fact, I only read these last summer. 
Right. I picked up the first 14 issues in the pound bins at London Comic Con. In addition to being good vigilante stories, similar to the pulps and the TV shows like Person of Interest and The Equaliser, they managed to be solid little action tales with a good social conscience. Mm. Ever banging you over the head with it. Yeah. Which I thought. Uh, Hannigan's a brilliant designer, contributed some of the best covers for both DC and Marvel in the early to mid-80s. His work's cleaner here, because he's, he's doing sequential storytelling, so it's less abstract, abstract, Sorry, than some of his better covers for Batman and Spectacular Spider-Man. But he still manages to have some pretty neat touches. On page four, when Ollie attacks uh, a bunch of muggers in the park, Hannigan turns the action into a series of black and white frames. Not panels, more stills of an overall faster-paced sequence than we are actually witness to. It's a good way to imply how fast Oliver's actually moving, given that he's probably a good 20 years older Mm. than the muggers. I like that, Pedge. Yeah. I like it being black and white. I think that was quite good. I like the sound effect as well. Splurdunk when he punches somebody in the face. Because <laughs> that's the, the noise it makes. That is totally the noise that hitting somebody in the face with a fine piece of hickory would make. Splurdunk. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, see, I'm seeing that <laughs> you're not necessarily buying that. Uh. <laughs> Alright. The events of the longbow hunters are picked up as with Green Lantern issue one, without any real explanation. Ollie still has a big old bag of money that he kept at the end of that story. Diner is still worried about being touched after how she was treated at the end with the kidnap, the torture, and, and potential rape. The Longbow Hunters itself kind of left it ambiguous, and we weren't really sure as to whether that was exactly what had happened when we read it, but Dina not being able to tolerate Oliver's touch, and Ollie mentioning getting help for both of them, kind of lays out that that, that is indeed what happened, isn't it? Mm. Because I, I, Ollie's quite sensitively written here. Yeah. I do think that he's, he points out that this is the problem, not just her problem. And he's willing to go to see the counsellor with her. Although he bears a striking resemblance to Spike from Buffy on page 8. He does, yeah. With, um, but with rather ridiculous facial hair. Mm. James Masters could totally play this role now, couldn't he? Actually yeah. looking at that panel. But I think Stephen ML's got that... Uh, that's sewn up. I'm, I'm still waiting for the facial hair on the TV show. I'm still waiting for the facial hair on the TV show. I think we'll have a long wait. You could be, yeah. Because, let's be brutally honest, if there's any superhero in the medium who shouldn't have a secret identity, it's Green Arrow. Yeah. <laughs> I've been studying your jawline and your eyes. And so how did you figure out how I was? Beard, dude. Look in the mirror. Yeah. Back when we covered the Longbow Hunters, we mentioned how the story set up the villains as irredeemable scum and how Ollie was justified in killing them within the context of that story, even though it broke the traditional norms of superhero fiction. Here we see Grell continuing to explore these themes, with Dr. Green asking Ollie if he considers himself a good guy anymore after what he did. These are very (coughs) interesting themes to explore in a DC superhero book. Superheroes are frequently held up as these bastions of virtue, and here, Ollie is outright asked if he's a good guy anymore simply because he killed somebody, a man who tortured, potentially raped his girlfriend, and arguably had it coming. Mm. Let's be honest. That was not a guy who deserved to live. Grell is asking difficult questions, though, which I thought was quite interesting. When is it okay to kill? When is it necessary to kill? Yeah. 
I'm just killing somebody not make you a good guy anymore. And it's done in, in a suitable title for it as well. Yeah, well, this is clearly labelled for mature readers. Well, not only that, but see, you couldn't have a um, Superman murdering someone. General Zod. Yeah, say General Zod went and, and and captured, tortured, and raped Lois Lane, and Superman showed up and killed, killed him. him. Mm. You couldn't have that story. No, because Superman probably wouldn't cross that line. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, but with a, a, a title, uh, I wouldn't say Green Arrow. Green Arrow is an anti-hero, but he's not a hero. Certainly not the, since the long bro hunter. Yeah, in, yeah. in the, the, the stereotypical sense of the word, he's not a hero. So I think it's a perfect title to explore those themes. Well, it, it's an interesting thing as well. It's why are superheroes held up to this ideal? Yeah. You know, we, what, there's numerous television shows. Thomas Magnum killed. Yeah. Robert McCall killed somebody more or less weekly. But the A-Team never did. Right. So are they less heroic? Is Green Lantern now not a Green Arrow? Well, see, I'm doing it now. Yeah. Is Green Arrow not a good guy now because he kills somebody who's a scumbag? But why? Why is he not a hero I'd anymore? Why is he not a good guy anymore? I think it's because of Superman. What? Well, what's the double standard though? Uh, Superman had no problem throwing wife beaters around back yeah, in the day. Yeah, I mean, he never true. killed anybody. But I mean, there are a couple of people in... So there was a Golden Age Superman podcast where he did say he killed somebody here, he killed somebody there. But he never actually, on panel, yeah. did what Holly did here. Holly put an arrow through the guy's eye, didn't he? Yeah. He very clearly shot him through the brain with an arrow. Mm. So Well, even now we've got uh, The Avengers, is some of the, the highest grossing movies we have, and yet they feature people, the, the good guys, killing people. They don't kill somebody deliberately in the Avengers. Yeah, Captain they're... America doesn't snap somebody's neck. No, but they're all shooting. Like the opening scene for Age of Ultron, they're killing people. And you just said Captain America. Captain America killed people. Well, the, the opening scene of Captain America, they make a whole big joke about. Um, he just said, damn. Yeah. Completely forgetting that the Avengers, he calls somebody a bastard. Yeah. So the internal continuity is not all that it could be. But the, the, the main superior team are still killing people. I'll have to rewatch that because are they re- are they living people? Yeah, I can't remember what they are. I thought they were some kind of Asgardian but, drones. All right, but okay, if you're having that kind of doubt, just watch Captain America. Oh well, yes, Captain America in, he's in, he's in a, World War Two. He's in World War Two, yes, but he's well, still that's kind of emphasising your point. So Captain America's killed in World War Two. Yeah, and he won't kill in peacetime unless he's in a fight. Yeah. So is he not a good guy anymore? But the Black Widow. Is definitely killing people. Black, Will- Black Widow freely, freely admits she's got blood in her ledger. Uh, so yeah, you're right. The Hulk yeah. is, a, is a common one. The Hulk's not killed anyone in the films. He's and dead. I prefer a Hulk that hasn't killed anybody. There is that, but he's still commonly brought up as... As being a potential if, yeah. hazard. Yeah. But he hasn't actually done it. But that, that's, I thought that was the most fascinating part of this issue. Hmm. That single line of dialogue, are you a good guy anymore? What, just because I killed somebody who's an utter scumbag who didn't deserve to live? But then, of course, that's arrogance and hubris, isn't it? Yeah, because if, if you have the power to do that... What stops sh- you from doing it again? Yeah, I mean, and, and should you, just because you have, have... Well, that's Oliver's answer to it isn't the hubristic answer that I just gave. Oliver's answer is, I don't know. Yeah. So you're getting that interesting thing, though, that he's not happy that he did it, and maybe it was a, a knee-jerk reaction to him seeing what he'd done to Dina. Mm. But 
I just I'd find that interesting, that double standard. For years, John Rambo was held up as the pinnacle of heroic American achievement. Yeah. He slaughters people by the dozen. And not entirely the bad guys. Yeah. So, you know, but I thought this was a very interesting topic to broach in, in a superhero. And comic. in killing that person, does he still deserve to be the Green Arrow? Uh, a hero? Yeah. Yeah, okay. I mean, I like that they're addressing it, but I have no problem with him killing that guy. At all. Right. But, maybe that's just me. Pass crossing, blurring yeah. lines. Yeah, yeah. I, that's what I said, though. I like Ollie's answer. Where he's, um, he just basically says, I don't know anymore. Yeah. So he's not being a huge, he's not, when he actually says, maybe we'll find out. Mm. So the the implication there is he's not going to be going around just putting arrows through people's heads willy-nilly. Yeah. That was some kind of special situation. And it would be interesting to... I've got to have to dig out issue three of this and see what the letters page reaction was to him killing somebody at the end of Longbow Hunters. Right. I wonder if there was that big swell of, of negativity like there was after Man of Steel. Mm. Or if because this isn't Superman, because it's Green Arrow, yeah. there was a more accepting... Because, you know... Was there a big swelling of controversy when Superman killed off General Zod in the comics? I think that, well, he, he went on that whole story arc where he went on a quest to find himself. When he exiled himself, <laughs> yeah. So, hey, full circle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As we've, uh, do you think we planned this? Mm-hmm. Which, obviously, we do. Uh, again, so, a one line, just like when we did with Multiversity, one line is just spun us off in a, yeah. an interest. I thought that was, thematically, that was one of the most interesting things about this issue. That whole discussion of, of, are you not a good guy anymore because you killed somebody? I thought that was quite a fascinating topic. I was quite interested by the, the flashback scenes, were the, of what she, how she remembers Dr. Being, Green. Yeah. I thought that was quite interesting. Yeah. I like the, the, the inherent cruelty of that, that he's keeping her captive yeah. in a room where she can see freedom. Mm. She can see kids playing outside. That's just inherently cruel and then there's the length she's willing to go to to escape yeah she throws herself out of the window to get out and that's quite a big drop it is so she's very lucky to be A. alive and B. in one piece yeah but I mean and the confrontation between Green Arrow and this guy he's clearly guilty I liked this confrontation because it's just a conversation yeah there's no punches being thrown or anything it's just but it's ladled with subtext yeah it's absolutely fantastic. Very well done. Very well done comic book. Uh, Dr. Green's actual descriptions as well as, as the flashback art as to what Muncie did to her is harrowing. And like Michael said, her escape is chilling that she'd rather throw herself out of a window mm. than endure what this guy has done to her anymore. It's left ambiguous in this issue if Muncie is actually responsible. Yeah. But I'm pretty sure that he is. Mm. You know? What I liked about this as well is that uh, this guy's kept under watch and no one's allowed to get in or out. Green Arrow gets in and then he gets out and he's caught by the police and everyone's just completely chill. Yeah. That Green Arrow Green Arrow just got in with no problem at all. Well, my thing with that as well, earlier on, he tells, Detective Cameron tells Annie that he will protect her at all costs. Yeah. But the guy who's been accused of this is the one who's being protected is the one who's being protected and Annie's got nobody but Ollie yeah yay your tax dollars at work protecting not the victim <laughs> but the guy who's potentially guilty cultural uh, commentary perhaps? Yeah, yeah perhaps yeah perhaps Mike Grell's making some kind of commentary there 
Um, Dr. Green would not open her private mail in front of two clients. Well, no one would open the private mail no, in front of... No, but if she doesn't do that, we don't have a story. True. <laughs> um, unless, you know, it could work if Ollie is known to be the Green Arrow and she goes to him to help. But he doesn't. She, he, Ollie goes after her. Yeah. I mean, it's entirely possible they've mentioned who he is under client confidentiality because they've gone to her because Dina wants to talk to a counsellor, haven't they? Yeah, and it's, it's, she's in one of those situations where there will be questions as to how you got yeah. into it. So this basically is the equaliser, isn't it? Yeah. This woman has got a problem. <laughs> the odds are against her. There's no one else she can turn. Bring in Oliver Queen, played by Edward Woodward. <laughs> I, I, I don't think that would work, but yeah. Edward Woodward can play anything. <laughs> well, he could, because he's dead now. But he could have totally played Oliver Queen. Okay. I would totally have... Oh, The Wicker Man was on last night. Was it? Yeah, yeah. Christopher Lee and Edward Woodward. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant movie. Uh, Ollie is very understanding of Dinah, Dina, however you pronounce that, which I liked. But he refuses to actually talk to Dr. Green himself. Yeah. Which is typically male. Well, he's, he's there for her. Yeah, yeah, he's, uh, he's not there for anything else. Uh, a very interesting and provocative... Reed pretty much sums up Grell's run on the book, whilst the more adult approach to the Flash and the Green Lantern didn't really sit well with me in the two books that we covered earlier on. This is largely because I do still think of those characters as science fiction pulp fun. There should be big ideas and big concepts and wonky science and a lot of fun and frolics. Darkening up Green Lantern and the Flash can work if you dark up the world around them but they themselves remain relatively optimistic. Oliver Queen doesn't fit this mould. And again, this plays into how one first encountered the characters. To me, I think I said when we did the Longbow Hunters, it's a tad silly that Ollie didn't kill, or at least maim. The guy fires arrows, for God's sake. Yeah. A weapon that was notorious for the amount of internal damage that it did when it struck human flesh. And as someone who grew up with Robin of Sherwood, it seemed to me that Ollie would be ripe for this kind of reinvention. Grell seems to agree, and it's telling, I think, that this more mature and nuanced approach to Ollie was embraced by fans who don't often like it when their characters are revamped to be slightly darker. It's Grell's version of this character that's seen every week on Arrow, not the angry, loud, liberal of O'Neill's run. And that shows, first season especially, inverts what Grell was doing here by exploring how one becomes a hero. Uh, best book of the week by far mm. what was your favourite I, I think it might have been Green Arrow and Green Lantern so of the three that we covered your favourites was two of them I th- yeah because there were two different books that I enjoyed the most right okay because right. Green Arrow is not a straightforward superhero comic like say Green Lantern is but yeah. it's uh, but Green Arrow suffers f- the exact same reasons Green Lantern does why because it's a continuation of a miniseries. It is a continuation of Longbow Hunters rather than a new number one in and of itself. And it's not like that's just... With Green Lantern, it was a subplot for another character. Yeah. But with this, it's the main plot that starts the story. Yeah. It, the, this is very definitely the fallout of Longbow Hunters. Yeah. Alright. So what have we learned about DC's post-crisis revamp and the New 52 revamp. Never change. They never learn, no. The darkening of the DCU started a long time ago. But there there did seem to be they had a creative direction of where they wanted to go post-crisis. And 
even though they had creative teams on each boot, they, they had an idea of where they wanted to go. Mm. And even when there was a misstep, like Mike Barron's flash, which seemed a tad too far in the direction of realism, they course-corrected and appointed a new creative team. So with Batman, this meant new writers and artists in both Batman and Detective Comics almost immediately when it became apparent Max Allen Collins wasn't working out. For The Flash, uh, it was a little more than a year before Mike Barron was shuffled off and, and William Messner Loeb's came in. The books that seemed to launch well and were consistently good were the ones that had clearly had some thought put into them. Burnt Superman and Perez's Wonder Woman being the best examples. Ultimately, though, all of these, all six of these made me, well, all five of them, maybe, exception of Green Lantern, made me want to read what happened next. The Green Lantern book was a little too melancholy for me. And maybe they should have started with a new Green Lantern, as they would later do when they brought in Kyle Rayner. I, I have read further with all of these books, and almost all of them would ultimately deliver near definitive runs on the characters before DC somehow lost the way again in, in the early 2000s. Perhaps realising what they'd done, they would replace Ollie and Hal with younger versions, and the tight cross-continuity of the Superman books would be dropped, leading to a period where Superman fell into yet another slump. Batman would be proved to be made of Teflon. It didn't matter what era, mood of the nation, or political climate, Batman would adapt and go from strength to strength. The post-crisis era was fondly remembered by a lot of people, even as it was decried by just as many. If nothing else, it deserves all the credit in the world for making me like a legacy character, with the sterling work being done on Wally West. What do you think? Uh, I think it's just the same as what we've got now. Yeah, well, see, the, you were there, man! But I was there, because the New 52 is exactly the same. I don't think the New 52 was a well-thought-out. Um, Initially. They seem to be getting around it now. Now they've had some time. It was thought out, just not thought out as a company. Because uh, the New 52 was planned um, in the pitch for Flash Rebirth. Yeah. So it was planned, but was it planned to be what? A line wide thing. Yeah. Okay. Next time on an all new episode, we're going to step back a little bit further and see how Green Arrow was revamped for the 1980s with the 1983 miniseries by Mike W. Barr and Trevor Von Eden. It's going to be interesting to see what you think of that. Okay. It's kind of bronze agey. Right. But trying not to be bronze agey. Okay. So it'll be interesting to see what you think of, of a, a revamp circa 1982. See you next week. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Goodbye. is a The Devil Will Find Work for Idle Hands to Do production. The music and sound clips used in the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only, and no infringement is intended, so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us as we have no money. Certainly this show is not turned into a lucrative revenue stream, as no money is made from this either, which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them, and look after them, but are probably not to be taken too seriously. 
New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com and Hey Kids Comics is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network and we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name, and Comics as the surname. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. his manager, coach, thing, whatever. Right, I will watch this trailer then and uh, see if I am interested. Yeah, he'll do a better I mean, job of explaining what I just tried to. Well, Rocky Balboa was great. Yeah, yeah. I really quite enjoyed Rocky Balboa. You want some brood? But I don't think Rocky Five's as bad as everyone says it is. I think it's a better film than four. Which one's five? The one where he loses all his money because his manager diddles him. So he ends up going living back somewhere. And oh, there isn't actually a boxing yeah, match. Yeah, it's just a street fight. Yeah, yeah, but the whole point of Rocky Five was Rocky was supposed to die at the end. 
Right, That's okay. where the whole film leads to. Right. And they, I think they actually filmed that. And then the studio said, you know, people aren't coming to a Rocky film to see Rocky die. Again. So then without that ending, the whole film was rendered pointless. It was never exactly a feel-good series, though, was it? No, but it's established throughout the film that he's now got a blood clot or a brain damage or something, and it's slowly killing him. Right. Conveniently forgot for Rocky Balboa. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, so without that ending, the film was, was gutted. Right. But okay. I don't think it's... Rocky Four is a worse film yeah. than Rocky Five. But Rocky Four is more enjoyable, yeah. despite being every ten minutes it's a pop video. Yeah. But, you know, you can make a bad film that's fun. Rocky yeah. Four. Rocky Four's my favourite. Of all of them. <laughs> of all of them. Yeah. Right, that's fair enough. I think my favourite's the third one. Just because, you know, Mr. T. I guess, yeah. You wanna come home with me, woman? Wanna <laughs> see what you mad like? Club of Lang, fool! Anyway. I think he'll, uh, he, he sells bread. In the new one, Rocky got some war wound. I don't think he would sell bread, despite being in the terrible Warburtons commercials. Because he doesn't say Warburtons. He does because he's American, so yeah. he says Warburtons. Yeah. So he gets that wrong. Better than sliced bread. It's like when they say Birmingham, Birmingham instead of Birmingham. And yet they never pronounce the H in herbs. <laughs> Birmingham, Caribbean. It's Caribbean. What if it's Caribbean? Like you say, you say bean. What if it's caribou, bean? and then we're into the pixies? Yeah, that too. That could totally work. It could. Should we do a show? All right then. I think that's a pre-credit sequence, right? <laughs> Inadvertently, we've done a pre-credit sequence or a post-credit sequence.